Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. piece of a triptych uh, that I've been laying down at the beginning of this series. Um, First of all, when God is at the center of reality and we pledge allegiance to Jesus as our king, uh, an integrated life of worship and justice becomes our response. So we looked at in that, first, uh, in that first message that God has been at the center of reality this whole time, and it's our role to wake up to that reality. It's not that time and space are kind of moving on, and every once in a while God makes a cameo in our stories and does something or speaks, and then he goes back off to the mountain. But actually God is at the center, that Christ as the Logos is the animating force of the universe. And it's our job to begin to wake up to that reality a little bit more each day. And the second thing we looked at is what do we talk about with faith? What is faith itself? And, and how do we, can we translate faith as pledging allegiance to Christ or embodied loyalty? That everything you are gets behind following Christ and his agenda. So that it's not, you know, repentance is not just you personally feeling sorry and telling God you're going to try better tomorrow. But it's actually about you saying, no, Lord, I'm coming behind what you're doing and I'm following your lead. Uh, And so today we're going to be looking at these two words, worship and justice. That when we integrate Uh, worship and justice in our lives that kind of gives us the pattern for how we are to respond to God uh, day to day. So we're going to begin um, with a divine reading of scripture. It's going to be Matthew 22, a very uh, well-known passage. And um, and this is a place where I want you to engage with the Lord in the ways that you best know you do that. Some of you maybe are more visual learners, and so the scriptures will be up on the, uh, on the screens. Some of you are more auditory learners. I encourage you to close your eyes and just allow the Lord to speak to your imagination. But I'm going to read this passage a couple times, and each time that we read it, there's going to be uh, one prompt that's going to invite you to go a little bit deeper with the Holy Spirit, just to, to uncover what might, be, uh, what might be there specifically for you. Um, so I'm going to pray. And uh, I just want you to be in a posture of uh, reception. A lot of times, you know, our hearts follow our bodies. So if we're all kind of closed off, it's very hard for us to be receptive. So just kind of be aware of your body. Um, Just kind of take a couple deep breaths in and out. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to read this passage, as I said, three times. We're just going to see what the Lord wants to speak to you this morning. Um, So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Father God. Three in one. Uh, ask that you would open us uh, to the reality of who you are in this moment. Uh, we want to hear you speak to us. Before we go any farther, we want you to lay the groundwork that this is less than theory, but it actually becomes uh, personal, uh, that it deeply relates to who we are and what we're doing in this moment. So speak to us, Lord, for we're listening. One of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. 
love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what word, phrase, or image sticks out to you? Just allow the Lord to reveal. What was a particular word, or maybe a phrase, or maybe you saw an image um, that, that sticks out to you above and beyond the others? One of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what situation in your life may God be seeking to address through the scripture? Have you been struggling with something this week? Are you bearing a burden that you know you shouldn't be? Have you had a new revelation of who he is or what he's calling you to? What situation in your life May God be seeking to address through this scripture. One of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we've asked the Lord to reveal to you a specific word, a phrase, or image. We've asked the Lord to reveal to you a situation in your life that may be bearing down on you. So I want you to take time and just to kind of pray out of that connection that God may be trying to make for you, to pray for that situation in your life, uh, whatever it is that he's revealing in this scripture.
God, we thank you that we don't have to subside on the rumors of what you might be like, but that we can experience you for ourselves today. Lord, I pray for a deepening of faith in this community, that we each individually and corporately have the confidence to believe that when you speak, it is real, it is true, and it is good. And that would become the, the anchor, the centerpiece of our understanding of reality, of who you're crafting us to become and what you're crafting us to do. So continue to speak, Lord, for we're listening. Amen. I want to encourage you, if God was revealing something to you there, take out your phone, jot it down. Just don't take too long because you're going to miss the goodness that I have for you today. And so what's happening in this passage is Jesus is in this consistent back and forth with uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are essentially experts in the law in the time of Jesus. And a lot of times we read this in a very antagonistic way, but this was actually the way that they did faith. Um, believe it or not, some people really thrive on the debate and believe that it's in the debate and it's in the tension that you find the substance of your faith as opposed to like, oh my goodness, we all need to agree. And if anybody disagrees, the whole thing falls apart. Uh, but in Judaism, this was very much the, the fabric of the, of the relationship in, in faith, in religion, was sitting down and arguing and asking people questions and trying to get these different angles. What does this thing mean? I think it's so wonderful and it's so frustrating that God gave us this scripture, this law, and then he doesn't tell us what it means, right? And instead of us, you know, being really worried because we have to figure it all out, maybe it's God is actually challenging us to do the work. And I think this passage is such a great example. So it's kind of at the end of Jesus going back and forth with the teachers of the law, and they ask kind of the ultimate question. You know, we're not getting into the, the nitpicking of like, okay, there's a, you know, there's a woman and she, her husband dies and she marries his brother and so on. We're not getting into those little, it's just like, okay, what's, here's the big question. What's the greatest commandment? What's the, what's the biggest thing, kind of the umbrella for all the rest of it? And so Jesus, of course, responds with uh, what is central to the Jewish faith. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And this was turned into a prayer that Jews pray several times a day, that it becomes the central tenet of the Jewish faith. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually adds on uh, another piece where I think it's from Leviticus 17, 19, Steve? Somewhere in Leviticus. I don't know. We don't read that book, right? It's Old Testament. If it's in the New Testament, we've already got it. Just kidding. We love the Old Testament. Um, but he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, many of you know, and Jesus is engaged. And so people are saying, okay, but who is my neighbor? And again, Jesus doesn't give clean answers. He tells stories because he's asking us to engage with, to wrestle with this idea of like, you need to figure it out. You need to figure out who your neighbor is. This is Jesus kind of capping off this back and forth with, um, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law in the day. And I love that it's kind of this two-pronged approach, this greatest commandment. These two are right next to each other. You know, in this uh, title image that we have for this series, um, as Hunter and I were going back and forth speaking of imagery, we came across this idea of the 
the prism that, you know, a prism is a piece of angled glass that as a single beam of light is shown through it, it's refracted and all the colors that are in that white light are kind of refracted out into this, uh, you know, radiating uh, rainbow image. And I, and I really love that um, as kind of an analogy for what it means for us to be the image of God, to be the people of God, that God shines his light into this place, into you and I as a prism and what radiates out of us becomes all of the variety of what God is like, right? In each one of you, in your story, in your personality, in your gifts, you become part of that image of God for the rest of the world. And when we begin to believe that, then we see that this greatest commandment and the second one that is right there next to it actually become part and parcel of the same thing. That we need to be very uh, focused on our relationship with God as loving Him, but seeing just as importantly how that plays out in the way that we love our neighbor, in the way that we love other people. And so we're going to be looking at it kind of summed up in these two words, worship and justice. And worship being the language that we use for loving God, and justice being the language that we use for loving people, but not just people, but all of God's creation. So let's begin uh, with worship. What is worship? I, I texted a few of our worship leaders this week to ask them that question. Uh, some of them said, is this rhetorical? <laughs> uh, but just, and it wasn't, it wasn't a quiz to make sure everybody we put up here knows what they're talking about, but it, it's a genuinely interesting question to me. But I, I really loved that a lot of the responses we got from our worship leaders were generally around the same idea, that I think worship is the intimate, full-person recognition of who God is. Worship is the intimate, full-person recognition. So I love that when Jesus is quoting this, this passage from the Old Testament, his greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. We would maybe even add in body as well. That worship is the whole person being offered over to God in recognition of who he is. The word worship means to ascribe worth to assign value, to see there is something in this person, place, thing, whatever it is that we're worshiping that has a tremendous amount of value and I want to get behind that with every part of who I am. And it's cool because I think it really begins to challenge us to look at each aspect of what it means to be a human being and to say, well, how do I worship God with my mind? What does that mean? Unfortunately, many of us have relegated worship to only being about singing songs, right? And that engages certain parts of us, but it leaves out the rest of our lives. And when we begin to break it down to say, what does it mean to worship God with my mind? What does it mean to worship God with my heart? What does it mean to worship God with my body? We begin to see that there's a much deeper thing going on than just singing songs, although that is tremendously important. But if the first bit is about, you know, taking every part of we are and ascribing worth, it's recognizing that it is about the object of our worship. One of the things that drives me bananas, and y'all know my bugaboos when it comes to church. Bugaboos? I don't know. It's fine, right? Uh, one of the things that bothers me, and there are many, is when, when we say something like, oh, I didn't really get anything out of that worship right? Then doesn't that bother you? Or maybe you've said that and you're like, oh, okay. We go, oh, well, I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't really get anything out of that worship. 
And I think that betrays, you know, last week we talked about this, the, the idea that the gospel has become very me-centered. It was, first of all, you know, maybe in previous generations, the question was, how do I get saved? Which means, how do I get a one-way ticket to heaven when I die? But then it kind of devolved even to our generation of like, how do I just live a better life? Which means, how do I feel good about myself and, and, and self-improve? And then we come to the Bible, and the Bible doesn't seem to answer those questions uh, in any substantial way, and we become very frustrated. But we kind of import that into the way that we read the Bible, and we import that into the way that we worship. And we become very picky about the way that we worship, because it becomes more about what we're getting out of it than what it is that we're offering towards God. When I was leading a ministry school several years ago, y'all can, yeah, you can do that, that's fine. Uh, we'll, we'll get Pentecostal today. The, the ministry school that I was leading in Nashville several years ago, I would take my students to different forms of church. You know, most of them were coming from some kind of non-denominational background. And of course, our church uh, was a vineyard church, was a charismatic church, and I really loved that. Uh, but we go to the Greek Orthodox Church. I always thought that was, that was my favorite Sunday to take the, take the kids to. Uh, how many of you have been to a, a Greek Orthodox uh, service? Very interesting. At some point, it just kind of happens. Like... There's no like grand announcement and there's processions and people are constantly standing up and crossing themselves and there's incense and there's a guy in the corner and he's literally singing in Greek and it's very strange. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a whole other world. And we'd always go out afterwards and we'd talk about the experience. How, what were you perceiving? What was confusing? What was interesting to you? Um, and we'd always come down to, are you able to connect to God in that? And when we began to ask those questions, what we realized is there's so many of our prejudices of what we think is worship um, that are determined upon our personal aesthetics. It's not worship unless there are reverbed guitars, you know, or whatever it might be. It has to hit a certain decibel or whatever it is, you know, the, the, the subject matter that we prefer. And uh, there is a beauty to having worship that's incredibly personal to you, but that can become a cage that holds you back. And eventually you're picking and choosing, even within our own church, you're deciding which worship leaders you like better. And maybe you don't really want to come and listen to certain worship leaders if you know that they're leading worship because you don't get anything from them. And I think that's such a shame. Or you conveniently show up a little bit late because you're like, well, we do three songs. I'll eventually show up by the third song and maybe I'll get something out of that one. And I think it's unfortunate. I always hated that idea of casual worship. You remember seeing those signs at churches, casual worship? It means you wear jeans. <laughs> but a lot of times what we internalize it in is like, oh, you just you kind of go in and you'll worship whenever you feel like it and you'll drift out of it. And I think that's often the problem for so many of us, why we don't have a deep and substantial faith because worship becomes very much about us and what we're getting out of it, what we prefer, what we think you know, kind of tantalizes us. And we never grow in that. And it's recognizing that, yes, worship is more than singing and it's more than guitars and, and, and all of this, but that is tremendously important. I was actually uh, texting John David about it earlier this week and he was saying, you know, the, the ritual matters tremendously. The ritualistic worship is doing prescribed forms of worship, whether it's singing songs or praying the liturgy or coming to the table. Those things lead us places that we may not normally go. And as human beings, we are incredibly symbolic. We need spaces and moments to be led into things that we wouldn't normally have arrived at in our own merit. 
And I think that's the beauty and the sacredness of what it is that we do here on a Sunday morning, that there is no other place in our lives throughout our week where we're doing what we're doing right now. This is us attempting to manifest a little slice of heaven. And why would we want to miss that? It's only an hour and a half. Why would we want to treat that lightly or just do it when we feel like it? And I think that kind of leads to the second thing I want to say about worship. We worship as a loving response to God and as a discipline of faith. And what do I mean by that? A lot of times, worship is the overflow of recognizing who God is and what he's done in our lives. You know, some people kind of parse praise and worship for who God is and what God's done for us, and, and you, can, you can do that on your own merit. But there's a part of us that sometimes we come in here and we're like, oh my goodness, I cannot help but praise God for who he is, how he's revealed himself to me, what he's done in my life. But a lot of times, if we're honest, we come in here and maybe we don't necessarily feel that way. And then worship actually becomes more of a discipline than a natural, spontaneous result. And I think both are tremendously valuable. And indeed, living a life of worship is kind of holding those things in balance that wherever we're at in our perception in the moment of who God is, how he's revealing himself to us, what he's doing in our lives and the lives of those around us, we continue to press in to faith, to a discipline of worship. And I love that a lot of our contemporary worship songs, I think, are actually very sensitive to that. And a lot of the hymns, too, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know, we sing that. We're like, yeah, I know me. And you know, you know what I'm like, Lord, but I'm here and I'm going to do it. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Give me songs that actually lead me into new places, new understandings of you. If I'm going to be honest, many times I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like it. I'm not a big feeler anyway, but I don't really feel like worshiping. But recognizing that scripturally, it's a command. When Jesus says the greatest commandment, not the greatest suggestion, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And it's a command, not because God is trying to be some sort of oppressive uh, dad or, or some sort of a, you know, authoritarian who's trying to control us. But he's saying, if you really want to know me and to know who I've created you to be, you need to do this when you don't feel like it, when it doesn't make sense, especially when it's inconvenient. I went through this process, you know, as I've mentioned many times before, I grew up in the Anglican church, which is more liturgically based. And when I moved to Nashville, I entered into a charismatic church. We'd worship for a long time. Um, and it was, uh, you know, a very uh, emotional worship. And we talk about that often. People would say, oh, I don't know about the worship at that place, the anchor. It's very manipulative. And what, it, what people are really saying is, I don't like beauty. Beauty makes me feel things. <laughs> How tragic that is. But as I was entering into this new experience of the Holy Spirit, of this deep form of worship, I did become concerned. Maybe I'm just being manipulated by lots of high-ringing guitars with reverb on them or whatever it might be. And I kind of entered into this discipline of trying different forms of worship that I would sit very still. Can I perceive God without putting my arms in the air or swaying back and forth or even singing? And I remember this, this one uh, gathering that we had that I kind of practiced that in the beginning and then we moved on into the sermon and we kind of came into the second set of worship and I stood up and the Lord said, okay, 
you're good, you proved something, and I just lost it. And it was this free moment of worship because maybe I needed to prove to myself that I wasn't allowing myself to be manipulated or whatever that means, but to say, can I perceive him in all of these different ways? And then it became actually free. I was free to feel. I was free to worship God with my heart, but I was free to worship God with my mind as well. I was free to worship God with my soul and with my body. And sometimes we're so guarded when it comes to worship that we miss it because we've, we've put it in such small boxes. But I think ultimately, this is the, the, not the purpose of worship, but the purpose of worship is to ascribe worth to God. This is the beautiful fruit that comes from a life of worship, that worship forms us to go back out from this place and to partner with God in advancing the kingdom of heaven. Several years ago, I was talking to one of our worship leaders about what makes good worship. And she was struggling with a lot of the things that you and I maybe would say with it when we or enter into that like, you know, this worship didn't do anything for me or that worship was really great is that we measure it by the moment. And we were in a season where there was a lot of charismatic expressions of worship in outwardly charismatic expressions of worship in this church, which I think are awesome, by the way. I have no problem with people raising their hands and, uh, you know, uh, yelling out loud or, or praying in tongues. Like all of that is welcome and all of that is good. Um, but sometimes we get caught up and that's the measure of good worship. How many people were crying? You know, I always used to judge my sermons by that. How many people were crying? You know, how many people were in tears or whatever? Like, that's a good sermon, which is ridiculous. Um, but, you know, I, I, we were talking about it in kind of the emotional response in the moment as the measurement for good worship. And I said, listen, good worship to me is not what's happening in the moment. It's what is that person like on Monday? What's that person like when they're at work with that person? in their office on Wednesday? What's that person like with how they spend their quiet time when they are with their family? Like the, the good worship is evidenced by how you and I live our lives the rest of the week. That's when you know it's good worship. And you may be in here singing at the top of your lungs and your hands are raised and you're running around like you're on fire or you may be just kind of sitting here like a bump on the log is the old phrase in the old world. Um, <laughs> I do think it's really good to move in worship, by the way. I think that's part of the ritualistic nature of it. But what do you like the rest of the week? That's how I'll tell you if you're a good worshiper or not. And that becomes the, the, the beauty of good worship. It forms the worshiper. It forms us to look more like Jesus, to think more like Jesus, to see the world more the way that Jesus does. I think personal piety, as we've said before, is not a means into itself that I've checked off the box of, of worship or reading the Bible or praying. It's not about just me checking off the boxes. It's about me being transformed to be the kind of person who represents Jesus to the rest of the world. And in fact, in very stark language, we find this all throughout Scripture, that our worship is insulting to God if we do not allow it to transform us to look more like Christ. There's all these examples in the Old Testament. I want to hone in on one in Amos 5. Uh, the Lord kind of lets loose on Israel. And this is what he says. I want you to listen for that bridge between worship and justice. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. 
I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. That last little line, it's very confusing, but the translation's really there. It's referencing like other gods, basically. Um, kind of in, in Assyria, they had a god, his name was Sikuth or Kaiwanu, and he's kind of associated with Saturn. He's called the very steady one, and Saturn, you know, for them would have seemed like a star that it very steadily kind of goes across the sky. They were star worshipers. They were astrologers, and what was happening in Israel is they were turning to other gods. They were turning to astrology and going, well, we like this too. Can we just add this into our Jewish faith? And I think that's unfortunate. Like I was reading this and thinking, wow, this is actually very contemporary. Because some of us are so dissatisfied with Christianity that we begin to turn to these other little religions like astrology. And we start to read. We start to read these other things and go, well, it's Christianity plus this. Christianity and that. Christianity doesn't really do this thing for me. This makes me feel really good. And God is saying like, I hate your worship. Because number one, you're not pursuing justice. And number two, you're being distracted by all of these other pagan gods and these pagan ideas, and you're allowing it to muddy the waters. So you don't know what I'm really like. You don't know who I'm really calling you to be. And it still just becomes about you and what you're getting out of it. And that's the unfortunate thing when our worship, we do not allow it to transform us into justice-centered people is we think it's about us, we import all of these other ideas and idols and little things that we use to augment the faith, and before long, we're not worshiping Christ, we're worshiping ourselves. I was making the joke earlier uh, online, we were looking at, you know, Jesus says, love the Lord your God, and it auto-corrected your to your, like you, you are, and I was like, oh, there's that Gnostic heresy right there, it's like, love the Lord, your God, you know? It's trying to get us everywhere, guys. The atheists are bringing us down via autocorrect. <laughs> but we just start to believe all this garbage and let it get involved in our worship. And then we're not formed more to look like Christ. We just look like more selfish versions of ourselves. I think that brings us then to that second part of justice. If worship is loving God, then justice becomes about us loving God's creation loving other people, loving our neighbors, loving the earth itself. So justice is seeking to put the world right according to God's design and will. That's what justice is. Um, several years ago, I recognized that I have no love uh, for justice-oriented television shows. Uh, CSI, Law and Order, NYPD Blue, the one where cops are on bicycles, any of those shows. I'm, I'm sorry if you're a fan of these shows. I'm not a big fan, personally. And this is why, because it gives us a portrait of justice that we've internalized very much as a society, which means what? The world is an inherently awful place, and it's broken, and there's blood and semen everywhere, and basically all justice means is that you gotta catch the bad guys and you gotta put them in jail, right? That's all justice is. By the end, bum, bum, producer Dick Wolf. You know, like that's all. <laughs> justice is just keep the bad guys in prison, but nothing about like society becoming an actual better place that you'd want to live. You just kind of have to accept this is the reality of the world in which you live. Now, I was actually raised with a very different version of justice, the greatest television show that's ever been created by humans, Star Trek. 
And how many, any Trekkies? Okay, great. Original series? Next gen? Okay, Voyager. Okay, great, good for you. DS9? Deep cuts, right? Uh, Enterprise? Yeah. Yeah. New, the new one, Discovery? Yeah. I'm not considering Discovery in my assessment of Star Trek here. So in contrast to the kind of law and order CSI version of justice, Star Trek was, was all about this inherent forward vision, this movement that by the time that we enter into space, war, poverty, all these things, money is all the thing of the past, and people work for the betterment of society. And yes, the characters are always faulty, but there was this always inherent move to seek out new life and to boldly go where no one has gone before. And I always loved that, I hesitate to call it an optimistic worldview, but it was always about this forward movement. And it's fascinating, Nichelle Nichols, who actually plays Lieutenant Uhura, she's the, the lady in the back, um, she was said that in, um, in the show about season three, she was once at this gala and she got to meet Martin Luther King and his wife, Coretta Scott King. And they came up and they introduced themselves. We said, we're big fans of yours. And they're chatting. She said, well, actually, I'm thinking about leaving the show. And Martin Luther King said, you can't do that. Star Trek is the only show that we allow our children to watch because of the vision of society that it gives us. Her, this was revolutionary to have a black woman on an ensemble cast who had equal footing with all of these, with all of these other people. And it was the first show to ever have um, a Vulcan on equal footing with everybody else in the show. <laughs> but the thing that kept her on the show was Martin Luther King saying, no, you're giving my children a vision of justice, that it's about forming a better society. And so in the Old Testament, we find these two words uh, for justice. The first is mishpat, and then very related to it is zedakah. And in, even in that passage in Amos 5, we find both of these. But let justice, mishpat, roll on like a river, and zedakah, like a never-failing stream, which means righteousness. And so the word mishpat as justice, it can be retributive, like we're talking about with law and order. You, you steal, you're going to pay for it, you go to prison. There's that retributive justice element to mishpat. But the, it, far more times it's used in the sense of restorative justice and not retributive justice, which means justice is a proactive, forward-moving, ethical and moral structure that helps you to treat people the way that they deserve to be treated in the eyes of God and that you form a better society out of it. That justice is more about putting the world back the way that God had created it to be, not just about keeping the bad guys at bay. And so in the Old Testament, the mishpat of a society is measured by how it treats the quartet of the vulnerable that we find time and again in Scripture. The widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. That was always God's measuring stick for Israel. Are you being mishpat? Are you pursuing restorative justice? Are you bringing the world back into accord with the way that I designed it? Are you showing human beings who I've created them to be and welcoming them into a society where we're gathered back up into the place of dignity as image bearers and children of God? And so if mishpat is that idea of restorative justice, then zedekah, the word righteousness, means kind of like distributive justice. It's speaking to a proactive form of charity, of generosity, um, a, a morality that's not just about you behaving yourself and following the rules, but actually being someone who seeks out opportunities to demonstrate the love of God in the way that you treat other people. 
So to be a tzedek, which means a righteous person, we are required to be generous with what we have to fashion God's just world. Righteousness is not just about behaving and and following the rules. It's not even just about being a good person in terms of that measurement of, of living a perfect life, but it's really about are you generous with everything that God has given you? And are you using the, the, the things that God has given you, your, your, your resources, your time, your gifts, are you using these things to fashion God's just world? Or are you retaining, are you holding those things to yourself? Are you hoarding? You know, we don't often use the word avarice. It's one of the seven deadly sins. But avarice is that kind of greediness that's like a hoarding mentality where you hold close all your stuff because you're afraid that the good things that God has given you might flow through your fingers or somebody else might want that stuff. And so you keep it to yourself. But unfortunately, what happens when the love of God is is revealed to us and God has given us these gifts and places of privilege and we hold it tightly as they begin to dry up and to rot and they become useless, they become tepid and they don't do what they're there to do. And I think often, if we're honest, it's because we're afraid that God's not going to give us even more, right? Like you and I, think about yourself. Think about how you spend your time. Think about your resources, your finances, your gifts, your amazing brains, your amazing hearts. And you're afraid that if I give this away, I'm not going to get any more. This is all I have. And so you hold it tight. And you keep it deep in yourself. And it's just about you and God. And before long, it starts to dry up. And it starts to wither. And then all of a sudden, it's not even really about you and God anymore because there's no deep connection, because there's not a constant flow of the love of God. I think most of the time we're not generous people because we don't believe that God is a generous God. And so what happens when we misunderstand the call to worship and justice as this integrated lifestyle? When we fail to respond to God, we get stuck in idolatry and injustice. If there are two calls for the lifestyle we're called to lead, there are two forms of sin. Number one is sin in our intimate relationship with God. This is what we call idolatry. And it's when you and I begin to find our source in something else. Another person, in success at your job, in your relationships, in your achievements, in something that's just a little bit more tangible perhaps than the God of the universe. Idolatry is anything that you find your identity in that is not God or is not from him. And even sometimes, again, like the gifts of God themselves can become idols, and we place those things in greater importance. But it's recognizing someone, something, an idea, a philosophy, whatever, as more important than the God that's revealed in Christ Jesus. And then the second sin that we can encounter is the sin of injustice, which is when we treat God's creation in a way that devalues God's intentions, Okay, when you treat, when you look at other people and you judge them as less than the way that God sees them, when you devalue other people because of whatever the tribalistic categories are that we've fallen into. But it doesn't stop there, it also becomes about creation. When we do not treat creation, when we devalue creation um, in the way that, that is contrary to how God has designed it. You know, the big crisis this week has been that the Amazon has been on fire for two weeks and most of us don't even know anything about it because we think it has nothing to do with us. And unfortunately, it takes articles like I saw even this morning about how it's going to affect uh, the Midwestern United States. 
and how, what it's going to do to our pocketbooks if we lose the Amazon. Those are the only reasons that we begin to become active. Not because we see the world the way that God does, because it affects our level of comfort. And I wonder what would happen, you know, really to recognize today the cries for justice in our society that bear very little of the divine imprint. The versions of justice that we've bought from our surrounding society that fall a little bit more into that justice is just about going after the bad guys and hiding them from society. Justice is about canceling people. You know, justice is about just erasing uncomfortable people from my life so that I can continue to maintain the semblance of being comfortable and being a nice person and being someone who loves God and whatnot. But so often the cries for justice in our society fall desperately short of God's vision of what justice actually means. And how often do you and I as Christians, as followers of Jesus, do we pause to ask when we see crises in our society, God, what would your mishpat, what would your restorative justice look like in this scenario? Do I just want bad people to go to prison? Is that the extent of my vision for justice? Or do I believe that people can actually change, that they can grow, that they can encounter God, that they can leave behind their old lives and enter into a new world? Do I believe that we can care for creation and steward it as was our original vocation in the Garden of Eden? I want to paint a bigger portrait for you for what justice looks like just in our society because I think this is very important to bear out. I want to read to you a few statistics just about our judicial system. Between 1980 and 2015, the number of people incarcerated in America increased from roughly 500,000 to over 2.2 million. Today in the United States, makes up about 5% of the world's population and has 21% of the world's prisoners. Today, there are more people behind bars for a drug offense than the number of people who were in prison or jail for any crime in 1980. That's really when you begin to see it change, the kind of the war on drugs initiative and how much of a failure that was. Even as we learned last week at the Education to Action, that we cannot see addiction as a crime, but we have to see it as a disease. Though African Americans and Hispanics make up approximately 32% of the U.S. population, they comprise 56% of all incarcerated people in 2015. If African Americans and Hispanics were incarcerated at the same rates as whites, prison and jail populations would decline by almost 40%. So now you see not only is it a broken judicial system, but it's a broken vision of race. In 2012 alone, the United States spent nearly $81 billion on corrections. So it's costing you this small vision of justice. And these are the kind of statistics we can turn a blind eye to and we can say, well, that's, I'm going to be neither in the world nor of the world. It's just going to be about me and I'm just going to worship Jesus and listen to my worship CDs and read my Bible and just kind of twiddle my thumbs until I die so I can go to heaven. You can live that kind of life. But I, I challenge you, is it really worship if you don't see statistics, if you don't see people, if you don't read the news and it breaks your heart because something in you says, this is not the way that God designed this world. This is not the vision that he has for who we can become. And then to recognize that you are actually the ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. That the way that you see, the way that you feel, the way that you act carries heaven with you. 
and you actually have something to do. So often we're just sitting here saying, God, would you show up? Would you do something about all these atrocities? And he's like, I gave the church. What more do you want? I gave you my spirit. Go, do it. You have permission. And I I think this is what's so powerful about us is that the church is a model to the world that says this is what it looks like when God is king. The way that we treat each other, the way that we come together, that we we make the sacrifice of praise and worship, the way that we're generous, and the way that we go back out from this place, and the way that we operate in the marketplace, and in our families, and with strangers, in our city, on our, the national platform, whatever it might be, we're, we are testifying with every part of ourselves, our heart, our mind, our body, our soul, and saying, this is what it looks like when God is king, and the world is set right. And ultimately, a lifestyle of worship and, and justice leads to your healing because it's what you were created for. These, are, these, these aren't foreign languages to you at the deepest part of what it means to be a human being. These things are written into your DNA. I think oftentimes we, are, we get stopped up, we get stuck when we think it's just about our personal salvation and checking off the boxes of being a Christian. This is the beauty, I think, of this initiative that we have with Local Global of Education to Action. Rather than as a church, us just constantly providing you opportunities to just jump on board, do things that make you feel good, to be a kind of just person, to say, hey, here's what's going on in the city, and here's some people in our city that are, that are on the front lines, and let's listen to their experience and ask questions. And if this thing resonates with you, maybe it's because God is challenging the deepest part of you to say, this is what I've crafted you for. I want you to be someone who's on the front lines of fighting addiction in Central Florida. I want you to be someone who is advocating out there for human trafficking or or, or HIV or homelessness or whatever it might be. All of these different issues, like each one of you, God has written something in and you're going to find it someday and you're going to go, that's it. That's what I was created for. And guess what? You only have capacity for like two to three things. And that's fine because that's why God gave us the church. You don't, you do not have, let, let me give you a, let me just relax. You do not have the capacity to care about everything. Okay? Chill. And don't listen to anybody online who makes you think like, well, if you didn't repost this thing in 30 seconds, you obviously hate orphans. Like, this is what I love about the church. When I look out here and I know your stories, like I know so many of you and the thing, like you care about that thing. And I'm like, yes, you go do that thing. My thing, gun control and oceans. Very little to do with each other, but those are my things right now. And I'm putting my energy into to seeking God's justice in those arenas. And I, and I know so many of you and I know your hearts and you've got the thing, but like together, we've got it covered. And for those of you that haven't found the thing yet, get out there, explore, do stuff, volunteer for stuff. Maybe it resonates, maybe it doesn't, but you're gonna find that thing that's like, oh, that's it. That's, that's where I get to sow the seeds of divine justice. So is your worship forming you to become a more reverent, justice-oriented follower of Jesus? Or is it about what you get out of it? Is it about how it makes you feel? And with that in mind, we're going to step into uh, coming towards uh, the, the Lord's table, Holy Communion. 
and I've written a liturgy for us as a form of worship that leads us places that we maybe wouldn't normally go on our own. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And as we read these prayers together, be open to allow it to form you, to challenge some things in you, to build you up and to lead you closer to God. So let's pray together. For those of you who are unfamiliar, this is something we're endeavoring to a little bit more. We're using some ancient forms of prayer. We're writing prayers. We're praying the scriptures as ways to lead us into these new places. So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you. Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, whoever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Together, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We come into your presence, Father in heaven with repentant hearts. We know we've continually fallen into idolatry and injustice when you have called us to a life of worship and justice. We have found our source in things that are not you, relationships, accomplishments, ideas, and idols. We've believed worship has more to do with how we feel in the moment and not the truth of who you are. We have not loved you with our whole heart, soul, and mind. We've not allowed worship to form us into your true image bearers with hearts broken open by the things that break yours. We've turned a blind eye to injustice in the world. And we've been selfish with the gifts you have granted us. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So just to take a moment, and if God's drawing up anything within you, just to confess those things to him with idolatry and injustice. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Let justice roll on like a river. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? For the sake of your world, O Lord, we come to your table as an act of worship. As we receive the body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, form us to look more like him as living sacrifices. Let the grace of this holy communion make us one body, one spirit in Christ, that we may worthily serve the world in his name. So friends, brothers, sisters, let us come to the Lord's table as an act of worship.
This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.